It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, September 23rd, 2021. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show, live from our brand spanking new DC studios. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com is our online home. Everything about the show right there. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free of charge, on demand, and growing. So thank you for that. Let me tell you about the lineup today. I'm looking forward to today's show, every show. But there's some shows you're just especially excited about the guests. Today is one of those days. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, I've been dying to ask her about a host of issues related to COVID and the pandemic and the decisions being made by the government. She will be here later this hour. Congresswoman Kathy McMorris Rogers will also join us in the next hour talking about all of the drama on Capitol Hill, the spending that the Democrats are proposing, some of the voting that has gone down just today, and a proposed piece of legislation that is really horrifying. She's fired up about it. We're going to talk to the congresswoman from Washington State later. We will also get an update from our colleague Chad Pergram on Capitol Hill. What is happening behind closed doors as the Democrats are trying to salvage something on infrastructure, on reconciliation? They've got a few other irons in the fire on the debt ceiling and on government funding legislation. There's a lot happening and the scramble is on. Did all of the meetings at the White House last night help? We'll ask Chad. And in our final hour, Molly Hemingway will be here. We're going to sink our teeth a little bit deeper into the Hunter Biden laptop story. You might say, well, that's old news. It's only old news because back when it was new news, it was suppressed and ignored systemically by the news media, big tech, following basically directions from the Democratic Party in the heat of election season where a bona fide and legitimate news story was crushed. And we're finding more and more now with information and new reporting from Politico that, in fact, the misinformation, quote unquote, or disinformation, quote unquote, was indeed just information. Information that was very unhelpful to the Biden campaign. And so it was disappeared. Molly Hemingway will have some thoughts and feelings on that, I'm confident, and we will talk to her coming up. That's in our final hour. Fox News alert as we begin. Let's bring you the stats as we do every day. Coronavirus cumulative cases, 42.5 million in the United States, with the actual number far higher. The death toll, 681,341 now in the USA. More than 2,000 people died just yesterday again, which is uh, just so tragic and almost unfathomable in the age of vaccines. But we know that almost all of those deaths were unvaccinated people for what it's worth. 
the Dow is having a big day. It had a rough day at the beginning of the week and slowly climbing back northward. It is now in the green up 563 points at this hour to 34,820. Well, I'm going to start on the whipping, the whipping scandal at the southern border. I can't believe that we're talking about this again because it's not true. And yet it's like we're being gaslit so powerfully. I truly feel like I'm on drugs or something. We know that there were no whips. We know that illegal immigrants were not whipped by Border Patrol agents. That was actual misinformation shared by a few blue check marks earlier in the week that then snowballed into a full-blown scandal based on nothing. I'm still not quite sure, can they put their finger on what they actually objected to? Because it started with them all saying, oh yes, look at these law enforcement officials of the United States of America physically whipping people on their horses, right? As, as they were trying to come across the river, you had the agents up on horses whipping people. That's what they claimed. And then the video that they all shared of it didn't actually depict that. And yet, I guess they were so far gone, right? They were so far down this path. They were so invested in this controversy, in this outrage, that they just decided we're going to stick with this. We're going to double down. We're going to triple down. We're going to keep pretending like the initial wrong claim was right. And we'll sort of tweak and alter the way that we talk about it just a little bit. So it's not as overt the lying, but we are just, aren't we horrified, gang? Yes, we are horrified. And I've said my piece on this. We've brought you the reality. I guess they're just like upset at the optics that you had some officials right, on horses. And that there were human beings that were being caught or grabbed as they tried to illegally enter the country. I, I'm just... I'm trying to understand what this supposed crime against humanity actually was. And it does feel like this crowd has spent a lot more energy fuming and raging about this non-story than about the Biden administration droning 10 innocent civilians to death in Afghanistan, including seven kids, to death. And then telling us that this was ISIS-K that they took out, and it... Of course, turned out that was not the case. They needed a win at the time. They were getting hammered with bad headlines. They said, look what we did to ISIS-K. Look what we've done to ISIS-K. We've, we've gotten some retribution for that terrorist attack that killed 13 of our people. And even though we're leaving, we still have these capabilities. It turned out that the intelligence was fatally, literally, fatally flawed. And we killed seven kids. And it seemed like a lot of the Washington press corps, the White House press corps, is like, oh, gosh, that's a shame. Let's really get mad, though, about whipping that didn't actually exist. Anyway, you might be wondering why open with this topic since we've already debunked it. Because the reason is it continues to press forward unabated. The lie, if anything, is strengthening. Right. Jen Psaki said it was horrifying. Vice President Harris came out and said she was horrified and she was fully committed to an investigation. We got a leak 
And there was also a readout from the White House itself that Kamala Harris is dressing down the DHS secretary behind closed doors. She was furious and she wanted answers. I am willing to bet $20 that she made sure that that was mentioned in the readout and that she was going to leak that no matter what. She wants to signal to the lefty base that she did not have anything to do with this. And she is sticking up. She is sticking up for these immigrants and their right not to be whipped, even though they weren't whipped. And if that means berating, basically, a member of the administration and a member of the cabinet, so be it. She was happy to do that because it's political posturing because she's a giant phony. Also, this is in her portfolio. So she probably feels like this looks bad for her because the myth is now alive and well. It is fully established on the left that this is what happened. She's in charge of it. So she's probably ticked off for political reasons, too, which is why we immediately found out that she was big mad. But the next step, this is where it really gets crazy, right? I mentioned earlier that I felt like I was on drugs or crazy pills, whatever you want to call it. They are so committed to this bit. They are so deep into the gaslighting that there are now consequences The agents who were on horseback, and we heard from Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, initially, before he found out that the entire left had a narrative and he was uh, not participating in it properly at first, right? Initially, he was telling the truth by accident. He was defending the agents. He was saying, and he was quoted by the New York Post, he and the leader of CBP saying, based on the video, they did not immediately see anything wrong with what the agents had done. Top officials at Border Patrol said, yeah, this is what they're trained to do. Given the type of terrain involved, they use horses, and this is how they control their horses. And Mayorkas, just for like a couple hours, made the grave mistake of admitting the truth. And then, of course, he immediately retreated into the party line as soon as he got the memo. Perhaps in the form of an irate phone call from the vice president or something like that. But nonetheless, at its core, fundamentally, what was happening there was not some egregious, unspeakable horror. That's the way it's being treated and framed. And so, of course, heads have to roll or at least some virtue signaling must take place to affirm how horrible this was and to signal and to show the people who are all furious and upset about this, that things are being done and there's going to be accountability. So they have put those border agents on administrative duty. They've taken them off the front lines in the middle of the crisis, by the way, and they've benched them and put them behind a desk. For what? Did they do anything wrong? Did they violate protocol? Did they betray their training? Did they go rogue in some way? We have no actual evidence of any of that. But because people got upset and were using the word whip and whipping, even though that's not true. Well, the agents, you know, you had the press clamoring for this. Yamish Alcindor from PBS, taxpayer funded news organization. I mean, she spent the last couple of days agitating for punishment. Why won't you use the word fired? She asked yesterday. We played you that clip. Well, they weren't fired, but they were, 
I guess there was some sort of a sanction that they had to do. They're like, all right, we, we can't do nothing. They know, of course, that they cannot fire these guys because they didn't do anything wrong. They don't want to invite wrongful termination lawsuits, but they have to send the signal anyway because it's part of this gaslighting charade. So they're now doing administrative work. I would love to hear it specifically explained why. I'd love to hear the president specifically explain that or, or anything, frankly, at this point. Just take a question. And not only that, we heard this today from the press secretary at the White House. Cut 22, you'll be very relieved to know that more accountability is underway. Listen. I can also convey to you that the secretary also conveyed to civil rights leaders earlier this morning that we would no longer be using horses in Del Rio. Uh, So that is something, a policy change that has been made in response. So the horses are suspended. The agents have been reassigned and the horses are suspended. A lot of conveying going on, by the way, in that answer. I'm going to convey to you that the conveyance was conveyed on this and now the horses are out. Why? Like, aside from just this knee-jerk, emotionalist, do-something, reactionary move, just like a spasm of blah, we're going to do something, why have horses been taken out or taken out of the Del Rio sector? Explicitly, please explain it. I don't think they can. This is what happens when you have a White House so obsessed with left-wing Twitter that they just put blinders on, if we're going to continue the horse analogies. They are so fixated on what a handful of people are talking about in hyper-online left-wing communities that they lose all perspective. The Biden campaign was successful in large measure by ignoring a lot of that noise. But now they're governing by that noise. And how's that going for them? Meanwhile, Mayorkas, the DHS secretary, continues to just say preposterous things on the record. In fact, under oath, he was asked questions yesterday by members of Congress. He was going back and forth in cut one with a Republican from Texas. Just listen to this. Is the border more secure under your leadership than when you started? Uh, Congressman, the border is secure. We're executing our plan, and I've been very clear and unequivocal in that regard. Mr. Secretary, the question is, is the border more secure now under your leadership? Congressman, it is no less secure than it was previously. Uh, Just ridiculous, completely insulting. He said the border is secure. That's a quote. Can you imagine with a straight face saying that? We've had 400,000 people apprehended at the southern border in the last two months. More than a million and a half, more than 1.5 million so far this fiscal year. 1.5 million, and those are just the people caught. There are hundreds of thousands who have gotten away. And this guy comes out and says the border is secure. It's no less secure than it was previously. Well, fiscal year 21, those numbers of border apprehensions are triple, more than triple what they were in fiscal year 2020. But Mayorkas, oh, it's no less secure than it was previously. The border is secure. An absolute joke. Now, when it comes to the Haitians and deportations versus people being just 
released into the country with a court date at some point in the future. What are the numbers? We don't know. And when pressed on the math and the numbers, the White House clammed up and didn't have good answers. Are you shocked? We'll play you some of that audio as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show on this Thursday, just getting started. Stay with us. The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. question about the numbers that you gave and the math. So there are 15,000 migrants under the Del Rio Bridge Saturday. If you add up the ones that you say were expelled or released, it's less than 5,000. Say there's 5,000 that are still left. Where's everybody else? I, I'm happy to get you a more uh, fruitful rundown for you if, you, if, if helpful, from the Department of Homeland Security. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. That was, of course... Our colleague, Peter Ducey, asking Jen Psaki, circle back, about the math from the administration, the numbers, because they're putting out numbers that don't add up about these particular Haitian illegal immigrants in Del Rio who have been under the bridge. And they're saying that they're deporting some of them. They didn't want us to know about the thousands, apparently, that they're letting into the United States. But then they've been caught on that. So they've given some numbers, but you're missing thousands of people from the numbers. And so Circle Back said they'll have to circle back on that. By the way, Ducey's like the only guy in that room doing the job of a journalist. Can you imagine if they actually had an adversarial press corps to deal with and not just one guy? And by the way, it's not the first time in very recent memory that this administration has trouble with numbers and with math and seem to be obfuscating intentionally. In fact, here's a Republican congressman, Representative McCall from Texas, talking about a briefing just today on Afghanistan. Listen to Cut 16. In the uh, briefing, uh, intelligence briefing, everybody walked out. I believe there are still hundreds of Americans still left behind. And now I'm getting you know, reports of you know, executions, beheadings of their families and themselves. I don't think they know all the answers, quite honestly. They've been telling us it's about 100 U.S. citizens left, but others believe it could be in the hundreds. We know that there are thousands of legal permanent U.S. residents stuck in Afghanistan and stranded. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. And the administration has very few answers on the numbers. The president wants to turn the page, as he said this week, but the page is not turned for those stranded, abandoned Americans. That's a real story 
ongoing, and we're not going to lose sight of it. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Let's get to Dr. Nicole Sapphire, board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and best-selling author. Her latest book is Panic Attack, Playing Politics with Science in the Fight Against COVID-19. Doctor, welcome back to the show. Well, and thank you guys for having me. So I've been on a bit of a tear this week, on the air and also on social media. I know that you took some notice of it, and I don't want to beat this into the ground even further necessarily, but maybe I'll do so because I actually do think it's important. Dr. Fauci, earlier this month, said something in a lecture, he was talking to an audience in the UK virtually, that is just provably untrue. Here is just the snippet, and this is not out of context, this is what he said, cut 18. We have lost more children from SARS-CoV-2 than we ever lose for influenza, and we vaccinate children against influenza. So I put out uh, the video and some stats from the CDC demonstrating that it's just not true that more kids have died from COVID than ever die of the flu. It's, it's just the opposite. The flu has been in recent years deadlier in many cases than the entire pandemic combined when it comes to pediatric deaths. That number in the entire country, by the way, is 439. The true number is likely lower because there's a distinction between children who die and happen to have COVID versus children who die of COVID. But what bothered me and why it's still just sort of a burr under my saddle, doctor, is I feel like we have no chance of rational policies if one of the most trusted by millions of people, certainly most prominent doctors in the whole country, will say things like this about children that will stoke fear and that will, I mean, to the subtitle of your book, playing politics with science in the fight against COVID-19, stoke fear and exaggerate a minuscule threat in a way that I think is extremely counterproductive. It just worries me that we are going to take a lot longer to get to a good place because of, frankly, misinformation like that and the sources from which the misinformation emanate, including in this case, Dr. Fauci. Uh, I just wanted to get your reaction and your medical, uh, your, your medical per, uh, perception on this? Well, you know, Guy, one of the things that I wrote about in the book was, listen, I can find a study, a chart, a graph that can support anyone's individual narrative. So Dr. Fauci saying that COVID has killed more children than the flu ever does. Well, okay, so if you go by the confirmed flu deaths in children, then then actually that would be right. If we are taking apples to apples, confirmed COVID deaths in kids, and compare them to confirmed flu deaths in kids, it actually looks like there's a, over 400 COVID deaths in kids and about 200 in from the flu. However, the devil's in the details there because the CDC themselves and many studies have proven the confirmed flu deaths are grossly underestimated, which is why they even have to use modeling. So when you talk about flu deaths, they're really just estimates based on models. These are not even confirmed deaths. 
And the CDC reports that while they may say one to 200 children die from flu every year, that could be upwards up to a thousand some years have reported based on the strain. And as you have aptly pointed out, the COVID-related deaths in children, we already know are overestimated. How overestimated? Who knows? Because the CDC is completely incapable of coming up with accurate data. In the small reports out of Los Angeles and a few other counties in the United States, they have already showed by doing a retrospective review, looking at the data, that people who were hospitalized or died with COVID or a positive SARS-CoV-2 test they are being listed as a COVID death, whether or not that is the reason of their death. And unfortunately, right. this has been a problem since the beginning of the pandemic. And it is astounding and it is criminal that a year, over a year and a half into it, we haven't actually come up with a universal metric on how these deaths should be reported. Yes. And let's say, just for the sake of argument, let's say every single one of the COVID deaths, quote unquote, among children, infant to age 17 in the United States. Let's just pretend that every single one of them was a death caused by COVID. We know that's not true because of some of the sort of low level, narrow studies from certain regions that have taken place. We don't have the national numbers. I just I'm willing to put that aside just for the sake of this argument. We live in a country of what, 320, 330 million people and the population of infants to 17 year olds is in the tens of millions and we have about 400 kids who have died with covid out of that number and yet the debate that we have over covid and children in this country and i understand that cases are up among kids and that you know overall hospitalizations are up although the hospitalization rate is a separate statistic it just feels like our entire conversation about kids and COVID bears almost no resemblance whatsoever to the actual risk of very severe cases, hospitalization, uh, or death for those kids from this virus, which just sort of breaks my brain at a certain point. You just sort of throw up your hands. And, and here's a case in point, doctor. I want to play you a clip. This is from CNN. They had one of their medical experts on, so uh, sort of your role, but at one of our competitor networks, Dr. Liana Wen, who used to run Planned Parenthood, she was talking about masking in schools. And this has been uh, sort of a hobby horse for me because I think it's a proxy fight for whether data matters at all or just, you know, pure superstition, emotion or what have you. And here was her analysis about when we might be able to get kids unmasked in classroom settings. Cut 19. Imagine if every child and teacher were tested every morning and also they're vaccinated. You can imagine that situation, even if there's high levels of community spread, that maybe you can remove masks at that time. But we are nowhere near that yet. And I think what we really need to do is get the vaccines authorized for children as soon as that's possible and also really ramp up testing because that is a powerful tool that we're just not using across the country as we should be. Okay, we can come back to the vaccination of children question in a second. But she says... We are nowhere near a point where we can have kids in schools without masks on. And I just feel like a broken record sometimes on this. And we've talked about this on and off the air all across Europe for months. We have had school kids of various ages in classrooms with no masks during Delta waves in countries with similar or even lower in some cases vaccination rates among adults 
the kids overwhelmingly in these countries, the UK, Germany, Scandinavia, beyond, they've been fine. But we have experts in the United States who insist that it is an indispensable pro-science anti-child death tool to force kids to wear masks in this country. And we're nowhere near a point where we can take the masks off of the kids as if all of those children and that giant active experiment over there, it's like it doesn't even exist. And I don't know what to do with that because it, it, it feels like we can shout it from the rooftops and the people who are making the decisions don't care. Well, Guy, I can tell you that Dr. Wen and I, while we may agree about a lot of things um, when it comes to medicine, I can tell you when it comes to COVID and children and getting back kids back to school, we've definitely had some disagreements. Um, one of the biggest things for me is, listen, risk is a tricky thing, but we have to start looking at this as a big picture and putting things into perspective. So when you hear someone say, well, we cannot even consider going to school without masks until you have daily testing and everyone is vaccinated. Well, I want to remind people that RSV, RSV is another respiratory virus that kills anywhere from 100 to 500 children every single year. But here's the caveat. 100 to 500 children under the age of five die from RSV every year. You add the remaining children and it is much more. And when they are now seeing counting COVID deaths in kids right now, what you read in the subtext is a lot of them have RSV because we're seeing an unprecedented amount of RSV. Now, the same people like maybe Lena Wen who are saying, I won't send my child to school without a mask until they're vaccinated and they're tested every day. And the same day may send their child to a swimming pool. Well, let's remember about a thousand children die every single year from drowning. I'm sure she takes her kids in a car every day. About 4,000 children die from car accidents every single year. So when we look at moving forward with COVID, we need to keep that risk in perspective. Yes, it is true. You have a higher risk of severe illness in certain children, especially those with comorbidities who were born with certain conditions, congenital heart disease, Down syndrome, who are obese. But for the far majority of children who are otherwise healthy, the risk of COVID is much, much less than that of some of the other things that we have already incorporated into our lives every single day. Yeah, that perspective that you were calling for is, in many quarters, I would argue, completely non-existent. And if you even mention it, you are demonized as someone who hates science and children. It is it is a wild thing to see. Now, some of the big news earlier this week was on Pfizer and the initial uh, you know, studies and clinical results about children, 5 to 11, and the vaccine. I would not be surprised if it gets fast-tracked and approved, at least for emergency use by the FDA, very soon. Some people are saying even, you know, possibly October. Then there's going to be a giant fight, not over masks this time. That'll still be a fight. But now vaccine mandates for children whether it is to participate in sports or activities or even go to school, Dr. Gottlieb has suggested there should be some flexibility for parents here, given how kids are really not at terrible risk from COVID-19. It's a different debate than adult vaccinations and you know requirements and that sort of thing. We have other doctors, including Dr. Siegel, who sounded very upbeat, very pro-vaccinations for children when he was on the show earlier this week. Where do you come down on vaccines for kids 
and what parents need to know as they sort through that decision, if it even is a choice, because I, I think there are going to be some people who are going to try to force it. I don't disagree with you. I do think that they are going to try very hard to mandate um, vaccination in young children. And I think it is wonderful that Pfizer is announcing that, you know, that the vaccine, the lower dose, produced um, antibodies and immune response. I think it's important that we do have a safe and efficacious vaccine for people of all ages because we want to make sure that we protect our vulnerable. However, what the data is going to have to show is that vaccinating the population as a whole will actually have significant clinical benefit. And I can tell you right now, these vaccine trials in young children, all they're looking at is to see if they are able to amount an immune response. They're not actually looking at the clinical significance of how many kids is it keeping out of the hospital? Is it preventing MISC? And all the other things that we're concerned about. And I can tell you, I have some concerns that if a child has already recovered from COVID-19 and has the antibodies, and then you vaccinate them, are they at an increased risk for developing MISC, which is that multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, which is subsequently what we're seeing in some kids getting COVID-19 and is an autoimmune response because of their immune system. So these are the things I'm looking for. But unfortunately, there's only about 2,200 kids in the 5 to 11 years arm. Only about two-thirds of them actually received the vaccine because you had to give a placebo to a group. And I can tell you, as someone in academic medicine, that study is not powered enough, meaning there aren't enough people in it to see those rare adverse events. Unlike the adult ones. With the myocarditis. Well, exactly. The the adult one. But we already know the risk and benefits with that. I mean, the benefits just far outweigh the the very rare risk. What happened with the adolescents, we didn't really see a significant amount of cases of myocarditis in the adolescent trials, again, because there were fewer people in the trials, albeit Mm. more than the 5 to 11 group. But then when you started mass vaccinating, you started to see more of those rare events. So my concern is when we're talking about these young children who are at an extremely low risk from severe outcomes of COVID-19, you have to truly prove that there is a higher benefit than risk in these vaccines for them because they are very low risk. Perhaps it should be risk-based, just like we give certain vaccinations to elderly every year, such as the pneumovax. Perhaps the COVID vaccine will be more for the adults and not for those young children. All right, doctor, last two questions quickly, and they both have to do with criticisms of policy in Florida implemented by Governor DeSantis and his administration. One is in Florida, they're saying we are not going to force kids out of school or, you know, force them into quarantine just because they have had a known uh, possible, you know, encounter with someone who's covid positive. If they are asymptomatic, we are not going to force them into quarantine. Some people are criticizing that. I would like to know what you think of that. And then the other part, and you can deal with both of these, DeSantis has talked a lot and again, just recently talking about the power of natural immunity, people who have recovered from COVID and and how that's actually very powerful immunity. I've seen some stories saying, you know, they're having experts fact checking him saying that may not be true. There are some people who seem allergic uh, to a serious conversation about natural immunity. Uh, What is your take on those two issues? We have about a minute left. 
Well, first of all, I'm tired of hearing people say that may not be true because everything may not be true. Just like they say natural immunity may wane over time. Well, guess what? We already have data showing vaccine immunity does as well. So the uh, good news is a lot of data shows that natural immunity is robust and it should be acknowledged. Uh, in terms of your other one, I am in full agreement with Governor DeSantis. Uh, if you check my Twitter feed from a couple of months ago, I have said that we need to stop pulling kids out of school because of these close contacts. We have ample rapid testing, and when those rapid tests have anywhere between an 86 to 98 percent ability to identify someone who is contagious, if a child is a close contact, you just give them a couple of rapid tests for the next few days, and if they don't develop symptoms, you're fine. You don't keep them home from school. We know that has significantly more harm than any benefit. Dr. Nicole Sapphire from the Fox News medical team. We always appreciate your insights today. No exception. Doctor, thank you again. And we look forward to next time. Thank you so much, Guy. And we'll be right back on the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back on the Guy Benson Show. So last night I was on Gutfeld. Had a really fun time. And one of the topics was... James Bond. There's a new Bond film coming out. Finally, it's been delayed two or three times. I like these movies. I like Daniel Craig as James Bond. I think this is his last movie under contract as Bond, and he's talked about how he doesn't like it, which I don't understand that. It's like role of a lifetime. Anyway, there's buzz about a female James Bond. And I was actually, I brought this up to Adam the other night. I said at some point, people are going to start agitating for a female James Bond, and that just can't happen. James Bond is a debonair, borderline alcoholic womanizer. That is who the character is. If they want to have 008 and do like an Ocean's 8 female spinoff, I would watch the hell out of that. But James Bond needs to be James Bond. And then relatedly, I think this probably falls under Woke Tales, actually. Woke Tales. There's a story about how Marvel is under pressure and is reportedly at least considering rebranding X-Men because it's not inclusive enough, because it's men, X-Men. This is, I mean, I'm not kidding. Because there's women. So we can't say X-Men. That's not inclusive enough. It's the whole brand. What do you can call it? X-Them? I don't want to give them ideas. The woke crowd never rests. It's exhausting. James Bond's a man. X-Men are X-Men. It's the Guy Benson Show. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Hour one in the books here at the Guy Benson Show, and we are underway with hour two of three. GuyBensonShow.com, 
That's the website. The podcast is free every day. GuyBensonShow.com. Fox News alert. The Dow closes up 507 points today, ending the day at 34,764. So a nice day on Wall Street. As we kick off our middle hour, let's welcome back to the show Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers, a Republican out of Washington State. And Congresswoman, it is great to have you back here. Thank you very much, Guy. It's great to be back with you. I would like to pick your brain on what the Democrats are up to in the House of Representatives. Of course, the Senate has a role as well, but it seems like a lot of the action is in the House on reconciliation and infrastructure. And it's really Speaker Pelosi who's driving the bus. Schumer is going to do what he needs to do in the Senate. The president seems to be engaged in conversations, but not really setting many parameters. It's the Pelosi show. And my question, I'll start with this. You were, for a number of years, a member of Republican leadership in the House. So you know what it's like to try to wrangle a bunch of people to vote when people within even the same party might not be on the same page. Talk about the struggle that the Democrat leadership is going through right now. And and what do you imagine is probably happening in terms of lobbying and efforts to get them all sort of uh, holding hands as one happy family? What is that looking like? behind the scenes you set that up very well i i have uh, i have been thinking about the times when the republicans were in the majority and we were working to get the votes to get major bills through the house it's clear to me right now that the democrats do not have the votes and so what's happening speaker pelosi's putting a lot of pressure on our members earlier this year she said that this was a once in a century moment in our history to in a once in a century moment to fundamentally transform America. And that is what is at stake right now. And so you, you just see where they are doing everything they can to pass this massive $3.5 trillion spending package, along with the $1.2 trillion infrastructure, which is on top of what they already passed in February, $2.1 trillion and two at the end of the year. Anyway, it's just, yeah, a lot of money, right. <laughs> but You know, so last week we were in the Energy and Commerce Committee. We had three Democrats join us in stopping Speaker Pelosi's uh, price controls for prescription drugs. It's really a socialist approach to uh, uh, price controls for prescription drugs. And we had three Democrats who crossed over, voted with the Republicans, which meant it failed in committee. Now, she's working around that, but that that was... $700 $700 billion out of her $3.5 trillion. So it was very significant, and they they had so much pressure put on them. I really applaud them for their courage to take that vote. It's not easy to defy Speaker Pelosi at this moment, but it also is an indicator that she doesn't have the votes, because if she had three members in committee that did not support that one piece provision, of right, yeah, she can't afford to lose four seats or four votes on the House floor. And I think it just points to how reckless this tax and spending spree is. It's, it's really uh, just a, it's a wish list from the radical left, and it is a government takeover of so much of our lives. It's command and control from Washington, D.C. Yeah, and, of course, it's just unbelievably reckless when it comes to just the, the sheer amount of money being 
just pumped out into the economy. And a lot of it has been done. They're calling it an emergency or COVID relief. A lot of it has nothing to do with that. This reconciliation bill is, I would say, especially indefensible and messy. That's where they're having trouble with the vote count. I do want to ask you, because we don't know what it'll end up looking like, and and I don't know if they do either. I think they're all trying to sort of feel this thing out. Where's Mansion? Where's Cinema? What about the other more moderate members who aren't getting the same amount of attention as those two that I just mentioned, but are very much on that same page, sort of quietly, right, privately saying things, we want the number to be a lot lower. Uh, we don't know what the final product will look like. As I mentioned, neither do they. There's the other sort of parallel piece of this, which is the bipartisan hard infrastructure bill that passed the Senate on a pretty big bipartisan vote. A lot of Republicans voted in favor of that. I know that there are a number of your colleagues, GOP members in the House of Representatives who are inclined to support, at least in theory, to support the infrastructure bill because, look, I think it has some flaws. I know that there are some you know, arguments in terms of tactics around it, but at least it is partially paid for, at least it is actual infrastructure as opposed to human infrastructure or some made-up term. My question, Congresswoman, is this. Are there people who are inclined to support, on the Republican side, the bipartisan bill, who wouldn't necessarily vote yes in order to force the Democrats to demonstrate that they actually have the votes to pass anything? Because to me... Even though I'm not dead set against the infrastructure bill, the bipartisan one, I'm not sure if it is wise for any Republican right now to be making Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer's job one vote easier on any of this. Exactly. And the the bipartisan infrastructure bill from the Senate has been tied to the three point five trillion dollar package in the House. They that is the key to unlocking the $3.5 trillion package. So to your point, you, it is by, if anyone votes for the $1.2 trillion package, that I would also remind your listeners, some of it is actual road bridges, traditional infrastructure, but it also it includes the, the full funding for, for kindergarten, child care, as well as universal or the funding for community colleges, which a lot of us believe that is that's to be determined at the state level, what those levels of funding should be and how that is distributed. But it is absolutely tied, and it's, it's a very small number of Republicans. In fact, the whip, the leader have come out opposed and are actively urging members to vote against that, pack, that bill because it is linked to the $3.5 trillion. And if we want to, we want to ensure that that doesn't pass. We don't, con- you know, that we just don't continue this tax and spending spree and spend all of these trillions of dollars, continue to print money at record levels and and build more inflation in our economy, right. uh, and increase the cost of goods. We need to make sure that we do not uh, see this this pack the the tr- the first bill pass. It's you know half a. It's estimated that less than half of the spending in that bill actually goes to traditional infrastructure. And it, and it doesn't include meaningful reforms so that infrastructure projects 
will be built on a timely basis. We know that. Yeah, and also we know some some of the pay-fors, because they initially said it's all paid for, and then that doesn't look to be completely true. Some of it is not really paid for. There's gimmicks in there. I see the argument. I just think my bottom line at the moment is the Democrats are having a hell of a time wrangling votes for any of this stuff. And they should not get any help from any Republicans at the moment unless they can demonstrate that they've got a majority. Uh, let them sort of, you know, twist in the wind because we shouldn't be doing them any other favors because they've got all these other insane spending plans in mind on top of just this bipartisan infrastructure piece of it. And they're tearing each other apart right now over it. And I think Republicans giving aid and comfort with, you know, yes votes on any any element right now is at the very least premature, I would say. Right now it is a counterproductive. Congresswoman, I want to ask you this, and my guest is Kathy McMorris-Rogers, a Republican of Washington State. I know that you are very passionate about this issue that I'm about to ask you about, and this is an abortion bill that the Democrats are now pushing in the House of Representatives, and it is really out there in terms of a radical assault on human rights I know that there are people in this audience who are pro-life and who are pro-choice and have very polarized opinions on it or some folks who are maybe a little bit more moderate and are open to certain compromises and they're you know, willing to consider some restrictions but not others. What the Democrats in the House are proposing is what you're calling the Abortion on Demand Until Birth Act. And it's it's grisly. It's almost something like you don't want to talk about. You don't want to believe that it's real. But tell us about the bill that the Democrats are going to try to pass through the House. It really is abortion on demand. So this and it is a radical, extreme bill that they have brought forward. They want to talk about Texas. But the fact of the matter is, this is a bill that they want that they brought. They just brought forward this week. It has not been in committee. We did not have a hearing. And it really is abortion on demand because it is it's over it's. It overturns any state laws, any laws that might have been enacted at the state level that protects unborn children, whether it is ultrasound requirements or parent notification or protections for babies with Down syndrome or other disabilities. It it would prohibit or late term abortion restrictions like, you know, second and third trimester abortions. It, It would make it all legal right through the moment of birth for any reason. Right. It is. It's it is. Um, it's abortion on demand until birth. And, it, and it, so it just allows for abortions based upon the baby's sex, race, disability. And it would it would prohibit states from enacting laws that would put any protections into place. So we are we are making we are making a very strong case that this they, it goes way beyond what Roe v. Wade ever oh said. oh yeah no so it, they, it so, is so they say this is called they'll they'll say well this is just codified codifying roe v wade it, it is absolutely going way beyond roe v wade left it up to the states and now this is just the latest example where speaker pelosi and the majority in the house is coming in with their their mandates and 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 their um, their agenda to supersede anything that's being done at the state level. Well, and in this case, it is it is very, very extreme. It's actually quite sick. 
And I would say this has no chance of passing the Senate. Um, I don't think that they would necessarily even have 50 votes for this in the Senate, let alone 60. I think it could be unconstitutional taking some authority or any authority, all authority away from the states on this question just to impose this radical left wing pro-abortion, not pro-choice. I think there's a distinction. This is a pro-abortion radical bill, but I will be – uh, I think eager to see who's willing to vote for it. And I, I think I'll probably be pretty depressed to see how many people are willing to vote for this in the House of Representatives. And that fight is upcoming. And I know this is an issue very close to your heart, Congresswoman. Uh, we agree. And your efforts in combating it are very much appreciated. Representative Kathy McMorris Rogers, Republican Washington on The Guy Benson Show. Congresswoman, thank you. Great to be with you, Guy. Thank you. You bet. You bet. And we'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson, back on The Guy Benson Show. We're just talking with the congresswoman in the last segment about this really far left. And I don't want to necessarily just describe it as left wing. It's just a radical pro-abortion bill that they're going to try to pass in the House of Representatives. And it reminded me of this story that I saw. It's a little controversy this week involving the ACLU and a tribute that they attempted in honor of the late Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The ACLU tweeted this. With Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, we lost a champion for abortion and gender equality. And on the anniversary of her death, the fight to protect abortion access is more urgent than ever. And then they quote RBG, who actually came from the ACLU. That was part of her pedigree before she went to the Supreme Court. But the quote that they use of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is censored. And I'll explain how. Here's the quote from RBG. The decision whether or not to bear a child is central to a, then they use brackets, person's life, to brackets, their well-being and dignity. When the government controls that decision for brackets, people, brackets, they are being treated as less than a fully adult human responsible for bracket, their own choices. And of course, what they've done here is they have erased women. They have replaced the word woman. They have replaced the word she. They have replaced the word her. Women, she, and her are gone. Now it's person, their, them. Because the activist left is so far gone into Wokeville, it's sort of this this strange quasi-religious belief now that they cannot talk about women in the context of pregnancy. We've talked about this. We're not supposed to say pregnant women. They're teaching this at some medical schools. You can't say pregnant women. You're not supposed to say breastfeeding. That's another one. There's a breastfeeding organization changing the way that even they are talking about it. Chest feeding, parents' milk. It's nuts. Recently on CNN, AOC showed up and she was talking about abortion and she was talking about people who menstruate because they won't say women because they're so committed to this idea that it's not only women who can be pregnant and again look i understand that there's a 
tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of trans people who are born biologically female, who transition, but are still capable of being pregnant. And perhaps that little narrow fraction would prefer to be called something other than women or mothers or what have you. But for 99.99 something percent of pregnant people, it's just women who are mothers, she, her. And the language gets so convoluted that I think they actually undermine their own talking points, which doesn't necessarily bother me as a pro-life person. Right. They always try to frame it as a women's rights issue, or at least they used to. And they can't anymore by these new rules that they've created. Because it's not a women's issue anymore. It's people who menstruate issue or pregnant people issue. And I think that probably is confusing and alienating to a lot of people. Because it's just so ridiculous to talk that way. And look, I, uh, reading the quote that they've now bowdlerized and censored from RBG, taking her words out of her own quote. I could make an argument against it. There, of course, is a pro-life argument against this idea that it's only about the autonomy of a woman. The question is, when does another life begin? When is that other life worthy of legal protection? That is the crux of the debate that we have over abortion. And I understand that people have strong feelings and mixed feelings on these issues. But it's just amazing that we're at the point now where one of the biggest champions of the pro-choice or pro-abortion or abortion rights crowd, they can't even quote her directly and accurately because it is considered to the woke people politically incorrect to simply say woman, she, and her in the context of pregnancy. David Harsanyi at National Review reminds of us, as a, reminds us of another quote of RBG on this broad question of abortion she said this quote frankly i had the thought at the time roe v wade was decided there was concern about population growth and particularly growth in populations that we don't want to have too many of that is a real quote from rbg on abortion think about that one it's the guy benson show Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Back on the Guy Benson Show, Fox News Alert. Just getting this in, Tennessee police say there's been a mass shooting at a grocery store in Memphis. They believe there was one suspect, apparently at a Kroger. And as of right now, the report is 13 people have been shot, one has died, the other 12 are wounded, and some of the wounds are very serious. So if there are major updates, we will be following that for you here But that's just an awful story out of the state of Tennessee. And obviously, our hearts go out to anyone affected by that. And we hope that those who have been wounded pull through. I'll bring you another Fox News alert on a very separate subject. 
is from Capitol Hill just a short while ago this afternoon. There was a vote on the House floor on the issue of Iron Dome, which is the missile and rocket defense shield that our friends in Israel have to protect their citizens from terrorist rockets. And we mentioned earlier in the week, it was actually a source of controversy, that on this debt ceiling fight, a handful of progressive lawmakers, quote-unquote progressive, right, left-wingers, they had insisted that the Iron Dome funding be stripped out of the debt ceiling measure. And Nancy Pelosi has very few votes to lose in the House, right? The margin is extremely thin. She could not afford a handful of rabid anti-Israel progressives to walk away from that vote over something like Iron Dome for Israel. So they succeeded. They flexed. They asserted their influence and their leverage, and they got their way, but only temporarily because Republicans went crazy. A bunch of pro-Israel Democrats were furious, and then House leadership decided, okay, we're going to do a standalone vote just on Iron Dome and the billion dollars to replenish this defense system that has been so successful in saving so many innocent civilian lives, including in the, the recent barrage, hundreds of rockets fired at Israel by Hamas, and then sometimes come they come in from the north, from Lebanon as well, from Hezbollah. The various terrorist organizations that are right on the border of Israel 24-7. So they had the up or down vote, and it was, thankfully, overwhelming. It passed. It was not close. There were 420 votes in favor of this funding. There were nine against, and two members abstained. I'll get to one of those abstentions in a second, because it's actually a very interesting wrinkle to this. But I want to focus on the no votes. You had nine Democrats. It was actually nine total, eight Democrats, one Republican, Thomas Massey from Kentucky, who I think is off base frequently. He joined them not for anti-Israel reasons, but we'll just set that aside. The leaders of this crew, of course, were the squad. Most vocally, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, who were smearing Israel every step of the way. And I just want to underscore how demented it is to vote against Iron Dome. But I can imagine, and I don't agree, I am strongly and passionately pro-Israel. I could imagine at least an argument for the anti-Israel crowd to say we don't want to give or sell high-powered weapons to the, to the Israelis. We don't want to sell them sophisticated fighter jets that they might use to, you know, bomb terrorists and there could be civilian casualties or, you know, collateral damage or what have you. Let's not give them any advantages when it comes to offensive weapons. Now, I don't agree with that, as I indicated. Israel has been attacked multiple times by its neighbors over the course of its history since 1948, and they should be armed, in my estimation, better than any country in that region because they're our best ally and the only democracy in that region that protects the types of human rights that people like squad members pretend that they support and talk about all the time with a big exception of Israel which just so happens to be the only Jewish state in the whole world. 
It's this little tiny place the size of New Jersey, and it gets so much condemnation from a group of people who say that they're anti-Israel or anti-Zionist or anti-imperialism. But there's an undercurrent, and in some cases just it's overt, there's anti-Semitism at play. And we know that at least two members of the squad, really three at this point, have serious anti-Semitism problems. Tlaib and Omar, who have both said anti-Semitic things, have shared anti-Semitic blood libels, who have associated themselves with radical, pro-terrorist anti-Semites. Their opposition to Israel or the Israeli government goes far beyond any policy. It is deeper and it is very ugly. One of the new members of the squad, Corey Bush, who also voted against Iron Dome funding, she reportedly has refused to meet with a Jewish newspaper editorial board in her district. By the way, these are some of the people who are calling the shots on reconciliation and some of the budget fights that Democrats are having. This is the problem. Because Pelosi only has, what, four votes to spare, she has to listen to nutcases like this. So on Iron Dome, they get outvoted 420 to 9 But because they have just enough strength and enough leverage, they have a prime seat at the table and there's nothing that the so-called adults in the room can do about it because they're so fixated on their power. But to continue my thought about offensive weapons versus what Iron Dome is, think about how twisted you have to be to oppose funding for a defensive system. The entire purpose of Iron Dome, its only function is to intercept terrorist rockets coming in, fired indiscriminately by terrorist organizations into Israel to kill innocent Israeli men, women, and children. That is the goal of Hamas. That is the goal of Hezbollah. Thank God they have this technology that prevents most of these rockets from landing or killing people. It's very advanced technology. I see some Dumb leftists say Gaza should have its own version of this. Why doesn't Gaza have Iron Dome? Because Israel doesn't fire rockets indiscriminately into Gaza. The, the rockets are coming from Gaza, from terrorist organizations. Guess what? It's not just protecting Jewish lives in Israel. It's protecting Muslim lives in Israel. But because people like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and their ilk hate Israel so much hate this Jewish country so much, they do not want the U.S. to help our friends protect their children against terrorist attacks in a defensive way. That is messed up. It's very revealing. And by the way, one of the present votes came from AOC. Her heart is with her anti-Semitic friends in the squad, but she represents New York City, so she switched her vote from no to present. And then she was seen weeping on the floor. She was so broken up about this vote. The heart bleeds. It's so tough, AOC. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast free every day. Joining us again 
is Chad Program for the second consecutive day. We're privileged to have him back, Fox News Channel congressional correspondent. And Chad, we want you back for another day because there's been quite a lot of movement, at least literally, around the White House since we last spoke. This shuttle diplomacy of sorts between the president and different factions of the Democratic Party on Capitol Hill. What happened last evening and has that borne any concrete fruit thus far? Not quite yet. Uh, Ron Wyden, the senator from Oregon, who is the chair of the Finance Committee in the Senate, indicated that, uh, you know, he thought this was vintage Joe Biden kind of bringing people together. Uh, One criticism that we've heard here is that the moderates, you know, the moderate Democrats and the liberal Democrats don't see eye to eye on how to go about this social spending plan. And the moderates won't even provide a number. They can say, here's what we're against. We won't tell you what we're for. And then something very fascinating hap- fascinating just happened a couple of hours ago at the Capitol here. Uh, if you don't have a deal, and it's getting late on Capitol Hill, what you do if you're trying to bring everybody together is you give the appearance of a deal. Right. And so House Speaker Nancy <laughs> Pelosi brought in Chuck Schumer, the Democratic leader, to her press conference, and the Secretary of the Treasury, mind you, Janet Yellen. Yellen didn't say boo. Schumer, you know, the old joke in Washington, the most dangerous place between a TV camera and Chuck Schumer. Okay, he came in and gave this vague statement that they had an agreement on a framework on how to pay for a social infrastructure plan and then left. And and we're like, wait, what does that mean? (laughs) And Bernie Sanders, the chair of the budget committee, says, I don't know what that means. And Mark Warner, uh, senator from Virginia, says, I don't know what that means. So this is the stagecraft that's going on as the hour is getting late to give the appearance that you're there and actually that Democrats Mm -hmm. are unified. But is there any actual evidence that there's a deal? Because I saw that, too. A lot of reporters on Capitol Hill were sort of ooing and eyeing at this dramatic show where Pelosi speaking, then in comes Schumer and Yellen, and they announce that there is a deal on a framework on possible pay-fors on part of this whole thing, no details, and out they go. And I guess the speaker was also very squirrely on what that entailed, and at one point... Christine, were you talking to me? ...answers on some of these specifics, and she said this press conference is over. Is this just sort of theater, Chad, where they want to almost manufacture momentum? Well, what Pelosi is trying to do is say to her members, we are going to pay for this. Um, You know, I talked to her uh, former chief of staff, John Lawrence, uh, who indicated to me that she subscribes to the Mick Jagger School of Political Management, which means you can't always get what you want. But if you try, sometimes you get what you need. And that's exactly what he said. He said, Nancy Pelosi is very good about finding out what members need and what that signals to me. Since they came in and did this whole charade about pay fors, was to indicate that the the blue dogs and the moderate Democrats and, and probably Mansion and Cinema—that's where Schumer comes into this—said, "You want it paid for? We will assure you of that." And again, maybe it's three point five, maybe it's two point five, whatever. We'll figure that out. But it will be paid for. So that must be the most important thing that has emerged. And that, if you if you're decoding this guy, that's what we learned out of that very strange press conference. Although I did see a few reports floating around that Kirsten Cinema was asked by journalists about this, and she seemed lukewarm, tepid, and sort of confused about what was actually said. She's not alone in that regard. So we'll see what actually went down or whether this was sort of like a little piece of agitprop for the purposes of giving certain appearances, which is not just for the media. It can actually be for members, too, just sort of like, you yes. know, hey, stuff's coming together, so the time has arrived for you to come on board. 
And we're not going to tell you what's necessarily coming together, but just, you know, listen to us. Uh, The proof will be in the pudding or the lack thereof. Chad, I want to ask you this. Based on what you're hearing from your sources, whether it's members or or high-level staffers, one of the criticisms that I'm also reading, and it's not just about the moderates or the so-called sort of centrists involved here, but it's similar to what you said. The president has not really drawn any clear lines about what he expects or what he would accept. He's willing to hear everyone out. He's bringing people in and out of the White House to try to hear their concerns and try to shepherd this thing in the right direction. But in terms of getting out front and leading and saying, I'm the president, I'm the head of the Democratic Party, this is my series of red lines, go forth from there. Apparently, that has not been completely forthcoming from the White House side of things. Are you hearing that, too? Well, because those red lines have not been established yet. And so the president is trying to get, as we get very you know, close to trying to you know, cut this deal, figure out where the red lines are. And he will be for what can pass. And once they establish those parameters, then he'll say, yes, this is what we want. And, and this is where you've talked about, you know, the moderates in the House wanting this kind of pre-negotiated with Manchin and Cinema in the Senate, because if they're not going to be for it, then, you know, nobody's going to be for it. It's not going to pass. It's just a, a messaging bill, as they say. So that's why the president, you know, he does play a key role in this, obviously, to bring people together and maybe off, also offer up his red lines, frankly. So they say, OK, this is the president saying this. He has to have this. He doesn't have to have that. Right. Right. So let me ask you also, because there's the bipartisan infrastructure bill, and there are so many different moving parts is the way that I keep describing it. It's hard to keep them all straight in my own mind. And I follow this stuff relatively closely, not on a granular level like you do. We've been talking about the Democrat-only spending bill, reconciliation, a huge amount of money, uh, TBD, the exact price tag there. The bipartisan infrastructure bill, we know what that is. It has passed the Senate. The Democratic leadership in the House seem to say we are going to vote on that Monday. And some of the progressives are very angry about that because they're concerned that they're going to get sort of shafted on the timeline here. Is that a strong commitment to a Monday vote on the bipartisan bill or is that sort of uh, fungible? It is very fungible. Uh, Nancy Pelosi really left the door open on that front when she was asked directly that question. Uh, She keeps saying vaguely, you know, we're on track, you know, you know, next week. I was told by a senior source associated with the Blue Dogs, the moderate Democrats in the House, that it was probably going to be okay with them if this bled over a couple of days, you know, maybe Tuesday, Wednesday, somewhere in that neighborhood, Thursday even. I mean, because what, what happens is you want to show people. If we don't do it, what's the alternative? Then you get nothing. Okay, and that's pretty bad. So if they're able to say, all right, give us a couple more days, you know, you know, that is a fungible date here. Uh, Maybe they roll this together and get a little closer to when they have the reconciliation, the three point five trillion together, because that gets the liberals on board then. And you vote later in the week next week. Well, then those two things might match together. But Pelosi The one thing that she was definitive about was that she was not definitive in that there would be a roll call vote on Monday on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. (laughs) Okay, And and the Republicans are now opposing that or whipping against that. Right. Because they don't want to help the Democrats at all here. Right. If if the Democrats are going to struggle to get the votes, they don't want their own team making life easier for Pelosi, even if some of them might be in favor of the infrastructure bill. If if there is a possibility that the whole thing unravels. The Republicans want to make sure that they are not throwing any sort of lifeline to the opposition leadership. Last question, uh, Chad, and it has to do with the last remaining pieces that we haven't talked about yet today. The government funding legislation and the deadline there for a partial government shutdown. And then 
the debt ceiling issue, which has been vexing to Democrats, and I guess the uh, key chairman came out and said, oh, no, we can't do this in the certain period of time that we were talking about, and then he sort of backtracked on that. Where are we on those two elements? Well, those are the only two things that actually have a, a concrete deadline or more of a concrete deadline. The government funding expires on the 1st of October, period. So they got to do that next week, too. Uh Dealing with the debt ceiling, and this is why we thought the optic of Janet Yellen coming in, I thought we were going to talk about the debt ceiling and then talk about all the crises surrounding that. Again, she didn't say anything. That probably ripens somewhere in early October. It's not clear yet whether or not they will put those bills together. It doesn't appear that that would work because the Republicans are, are filibustering that in the Senate or will. And so, you know, do they do a straight right bill to fund the government and then somehow deal with the debt ceiling separately? That part is unclear. But those are the things with actual deadlines, not social spending and not infrastructure. All right. Can you roll the debt ceiling hike into reconciliation? And what does that look like procedurally? I mean, it's just it's a you lot. Could. And Chad, yeah. I know that you are tracking it minute by minute up there. And it sounds like next week is going to be a very dramatic and busy one on Capitol Hill with potentially a gargantuan amount of money going out the door, or maybe not, because the wheels could come off. We'll be watching, and Chad, I'm sure we'll be back in touch. Chad Pergram, Fox News Channel congressional correspondent with us from Capitol Hill, just a few blocks away from where I sit. Chad, appreciate it. Thank you. It's The Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Time now for the Thursday Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show. Our website here at the program with many ways to listen live, GuyBensonShow.com. If you miss us between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern weekdays, there's a podcast for that. It is free of charge on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcasts.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And this hour is sponsored by The Finnish Long Drink. Our friends over there, they make a really good product. So delicious. It's all the rage in Finland. It has been for decades. It's now here in America and it's taking this country by storm as well. Expanding rapidly, you should try it if you're 21 plus. I recommend it. I'm a big fan. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only. TheLongDrink.com for more, including where it's sold near you or to order online. TheLongDrink.com. As we begin our happy hour, let's welcome in Molly Hemingway, senior editor at The Federalist, Fox News contributor, co-author of the book Justice on Trial. And she has a new book coming out next month, October the 12th. You can pre-order it now. It's called... Rigged, how the media, big tech and Democrats seized our elections. And that's available, as I said, for pre-order in the hardcover edition coming out very soon. Molly, welcome back. It's great to be here with you. Well, we had you last week and we are very lucky to get you again this week. I told Christine that I would love to talk to you again based on this Politico scoop. I guess it's a Politico reporter's book that's coming out which has some more revelations or it would seem confirmation of some of the contents of emails 
that were discovered through Hunter Biden's laptop that we all learned about back last what October in the home stretch of the presidential campaign. And just thinking about the title of your book and the players involved, the media, big tech and Democrats, that was the unholy alliance, the triumvirate, right, the trifecta of institutions and individuals who got together and either directly or indirectly colluded to basically decide that story, those emails, that laptop, the questions that were raised, it was all illegitimate. It was all a lie. It was Hillary Clinton emails 2.0, even though that scandal was real, not a lie. It was a bona fide scandal on her part. They all were racked with guilt that it cost her the election last time in 2016. They were determined that would never be allowed to happen again. So those three entities got together and absolutely crushed the Hunter Biden email laptop story. And there are all sorts of reasons why, right? They said this is not a real story. This is Russian disinformation. This is a made up Rudy Giuliani hoax. You had people unable to share it on social media. The New York Post, which did a lot of that initial reporting, they had their Twitter account suspended for weeks. They could not tweet about anything. I mean, it was wild back then. And here from Politico, a discovery, although probably not a surprise to someone like you, Molly, that actually at least some of those emails are authenticated. And I would imagine you have quite a few reactions to this. <laughs> well, it brings back all of those feelings of just shock and horror and anger at what happened actually one year ago right now at this time when there was legitimate, serious, good reporting on the Biden family business, which again is that members of the Biden family are given money by foreign entities, corrupt oligarchs, other powerful people in exchange for what we're not entirely sure. We're not entirely clear. It seems to be based on their proximity to their powerful father or brother or other family member, Joe Biden. Uh, but it's unclear what they're getting in exchange for this money that they give to the family. That is unquestionably a legitimate news story. It might have a completely non-nefarious answer. It might be very corrupt. We don't exactly know. And yet when these emails came out, they actually were verified at the time as being real. The way you verify right. something, you can say, like, uh, go to one of the people who received the email and say, was this a real email? And if they say yes, that's one way to verify that they're real. That happened last year. You know, Brett Baer and the team at Special Report did verify those emails. And Tucker Carlson had uh, Tony Bobolinsky, a business partner of the Biden family, saying, yep, these are all legit and Joe Biden is involved. And yet the media worked to kill the story. Big tech worked to kill the story. Uh, you had corrupt intelligence officials saying things in a very creative way to make it sound like this could be Russian disinformation. They knew it wasn't. It wasn't. Um, and now, finally, a year later, when it's much harder to use this story in a way that would um, help their political opponents or hurt their political allies, now Politico is admitting that what they wrote Well, wrong. and Molly, what I find, it's hard to pinpoint the creepiest element of this suppression that went on a year ago, one of them has to be, you know, near the top of the list, is the Biden campaign, while simultaneously refusing to deny the authenticity of the emails or the laptop, which was extremely suspicious and telling, right, to anyone with half a brain, at that same time that they were not willing to just outright lie about that, they simply asserted that this is Russian disinformation, and that was basically the marching order that came down from on high from the Democratic campaign 
in the heat of the final part of a contested and consequential uh, American presidential election, the the marching orders were dictated by the Biden campaign with this just very outlandish claim about Russian disinformation. And rather than, number one, rushing to go try to authenticate the documents and see if there's any there there and ask the types of questions that you were just talking about, about, you know, the Biden family and who was getting what for these payments or, or what have you, or trying to at least ferret out any actual proof for the claim about Russian interference or Russian disinformation. The media did neither of those things and instead ignored the first part and parroted ad nauseum the second part with even a bunch of you know former intelligence community people racing out to sign a letter. It felt like within nanoseconds to say, oh, yes, this is Russian disinformation, which, of course, turned out to be false. That was the reaction of the press, like the the curiosity But they always say, oh, if it bleeds, it leads, or we like conflict, or, you know, we like to hold people accountable and truth to power. That was not even close to the actions of the U.S. media. And, of course, big tech was in on this as well with with their active suppression of even sharing these stories. I mean, it it felt like a massive, real-time damage control, rapid response operation on the part of not just the Democratic campaign, the Democratic Party writ large, Almost the entire news media and the gatekeepers of information in this country, i.e. the big tech companies, they all joined together to make sure this did not see the light of day. And I really do find that very disturbing still. It is massive collusion and election interference. And it was done on full display. You know, we'd had four years of people saying that Russia, which has a pattern of election and interference, purchasing a few thousand dollars worth of Facebook ads that weren't even in favor of just one candidate. They were in favor of chaos. You know, some were in favor of Hillary, some were in favor of Trump. That was supposedly the worst election interference we'd ever had. Here we have, and I actually, you know, yes, the Biden campaign lied and tried to say that it was Russian disinformation. Uh, that's what campaigns do. They frequently lie. Politicians lie. Jen Psaki lied. That's kind of, I don't defend it, but that's expected. What was horrific about what we saw was that the media took those lies as marching orders, just like you said, regurgitated them, almost saying them word for word as Jen Psaki was saying them. You know, her job is to spin. They just repeated it. And these big tech companies claiming that they had these elaborate reasons why they couldn't allow the press to the New York Post, the oldest newspaper in the country, to be able to share this information that they've reported. And one of the things that just, you know, if you remember, they said, or, oh, we or don't by allow- the way, just and just to underscore this or to report or share anything else for weeks. Like they were in the doghouse at Twitter so deep because they did news reporting on something that turned out to be a legitimate story that was just deemed yeah. illegitimate. The New York the, Post the New York- entire Twitter account was shut down for weeks. And more than that, New York Post was shut down. People who shared the article were banned from Twitter, permanently suspended in some cases. You weren't allowed to share it privately. They couldn't share any other news stories. I mean, this was massive, massively oppressive censorship. But, you know, they'd say, oh, we don't allow hacked material. Well, just like a couple days before, the New York Times had published hacked materials that they didn't even know where they got them from about President Trump's private tax records. Nobody had a problem sharing that hacked information. I mean, today, the Washington Post has a story based on hacked information. Twitter is not censoring it in any way, shape or form. It's not hypocrisy. It's more about a hierarchy where if you are a political ally of powerful people on the left 
you can do whatever you want. And if you're a political opponent, you will be you will be censored. You will be obstructed. You will be marginalized. You will be you know prosecuted. It, it's just two different standards to show which caste is higher and which class is lower. And yep. the Hunter Biden story was an excellent example. No and, child and of just, Donald Trump would have been treated that way. Oh, I, I mean, there is no question about that or any Republican, frankly. I mean, exactly. that's just there, there's no getting around that. And yes, of course, it's true that the Russians interfered in the 2016 election, that they are bad international actors. They would do it again. The Kremlin was preferring Donald Trump win. I think the notion that they tipped the election is fanciful. And we saw a lot less attention paid in 2020 when it was determined by the intelligence community, for what it's worth, that the Russians were again putting their thumb on the scale for Trump. But the Chinese and the Iranians we're preferring that Joe Biden win and that President Trump lose. So, I mean, it's not exactly. like... Guy, I mean, not only did the Russians meddle in 2016, they probably meddled in every election since, like, 1918. I mean, it's just what they do. Also, it's what we do to other countries. It's what other countries do to us. It's about how you use that as a pretext to censor, violate people's freedom of speech, violate people's freedom of the press That that is so damaging, and that you would just accept what intelligence agencies tell you to say and that's not why that's just not journalism that's something completely different and we've had many experiences with intelligence agents giving bad information whether it was with the intelligence that led to the iraq war or the russian hoax or a thousand other things so why would a journalist just regurgitate what they're told to say right. and some of the areas? some of the wrong <laughs> assessments in afghanistan uh, especially recently about the consequences and the timeline and withdrawal and all of that But, Molly, I just want to finish on this note, because I think hopefully we've made our point pretty clear about the media, big tech, suppression, you know, disinformation and what the powers that be decide is disinformation, how it turns out in many cases, high profile ones like this one, like the lab leak theory, for example, on coronavirus, disinformation becomes credible or viable sort of overnight to these people and stuff that was bannable a few seconds ago is now all of a sudden based on usually political timing it's acceptable to talk about it it sort of does make your head spin and it completely explodes any faith you have in the gatekeepers the people who are defining what is misinformation or disinformation but but the thing molly that i want to ask you about is the substance here on these emails and what we do and do not know there are still open questions i'm not here saying joe biden is guilty of corruption he got all sorts of money from foreign actors i don't know what the truth is what i do know is when our colleague peter Ducey on the campaign trail in late 2019 asked then candidate joe biden how many times have you discussed your foreign business dealings with your son hunter joe biden's response was never i have never discussed this with my son and between these emails that are now seemingly authenticated and the Tony Bobulinski interview, which seems increasingly credible in light of uh, sort of this information, I don't know how I can get around the idea that Joe Biden was absolutely not truthful in that categorical denial. And that should matter and it should spark curiosity and even more questions from the media. I would just be shocked if we get that type of curiosity because there's no appetite for those questions because they all were in on the previous collusion and revisiting the issue would only make them look worse. And therefore, it seems like this is a situation that is ripe to be ignored again. 
Well, it is being ignored again, and that was yes. one of many lies that were told, including, remember, he said that uh, nobody from Moscow had given money to Hunter Biden. That had been in government reports and Treasury Department documents. I mean, it wasn't right. up for debate. Uh, but now we have Hunter Biden selling his artwork at massively bloated prices. Now, maybe there's a non-nefarious explanation for why they're uh, hiding who is purchasing these uh-huh. at a high level, but <laughs> I don't think so. And this is absolutely ripe for investigation. It's obvious why it's important. It's obvious why people are interested in giving gobs of cash to a powerful family. And we need to know what are people getting in exchange for it. That affects U.S. citizens, American foreign policy, all of these things that are supposedly what what real journalists would care about. And it's not... not It's not about, and this is the conflation that we would get, this is not about Hunter Biden's sex life or Hunter Biden's drug use or any of those sort of uh, sordid or uh, seedy details. This is about overseas foreign business dealings, not just from the president's son, but involving the president himself or then vice president at the time. That is the veritable definition of newsworthy. Molly, last point for me, and it's just a hot take. I have to admit, I actually kind of like Hunter Biden's art, having seen now some images of it. I'm like, oh, that's actually not so bad. It's better than I was expecting. I don't know if I would pay half a million dollars for it, but I will give him a golf clap for the art. I think for an amateur artist, it's it's decent, but more at the $2,000 level than Ooh, the half a million generous. dollar level. That's generous. I'm thinking maybe $500 as opposed to $500,000. <laughs> that's just me. Molly Hemingway, senior editor at The Federalist. Fox News contributor, and her book coming out next month is rigged. Molly, appreciate it. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour comes back after this. You're listening to Guy Benson. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. So two days ago, we were up in New York. We had Jimmy Fallon in studio. And out of nowhere, he starts bringing up the hair of several of our prominent male correspondents in the field here at Fox News. Because he was saying that, in his mind, Peter Ducey has the best hair of them all, including better than, and he named Bill Malugin and Matt Finn. I will note all of these people have been on this program. They are all friends of the program. So we then had this discussion analyzing in some detail the hair situation on all three of these men. Then we asked Jesse Waters about it yesterday, and he really had a lot to say in voting for Bill Malugin on this front. We then put together a little audiogram. We have photos of all three guys. And then I tweeted out a poll, who has the best hair? At Guy P. Benson. I tweeted it yesterday. The voting remains open for a number of hours. Right, I think it closes right around midnight tonight. So you can still make your voice heard, America, if you have strong feelings about this. But Matt Finn tweeted about it late last night. He retweeted it. Malugin saw it today. He retweeted it. Peter Ducey has been on basically a Twitter hiatus for a year. He texted me. He said he was thinking about coming out of retirement, if you will, on Twitter just to whip the votes because he was falling behind. And it looks like Bill Malugin is kind of running away with this thing. I mean, it is double digits right now. 
I'm waiting for Dave Wasserman at Redistrict to say I've seen enough, but no one will see enough until the voting closes in a few hours. And there are loyalists to each of these people in the comments having their say. I personally have not voted. I'm surprised Matt Finn is in a distant third place. Look at the glorious head of hair that he has. Can you imagine being a distant third? But then you look at who he's up against. I mean, it is it is very stiff competition, especially stiff with that blonde hair of Peter Ducey's. So you can vote. Guy P. Benson on Twitter. We'll make sure that we amplify it at Guy Benson Show on Twitter. Make your voice heard. Thousands of you already have. It's the hard-hitting big stories that we cover here on The Guy Benson Show, especially in the happy hour, which resumes right after this. Guy Benson. As we continue on the happy hour on this Thursday, Friday Eve, thank you for being here. Earlier today, we caught up with our colleague and friend, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, who, of course, is a medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, a best-selling author, most recently of the book, Panic Attack, a lot of news on COVID and the pandemic, some real controversies. She has strong opinions. Here are some of those opinions in a taste of our conversation. So I've been on a bit of a tear this week. On the air and also on social media, I know that you took some notice of it, and I don't want to beat this into the ground even further necessarily, but maybe I'll do so because I actually do think it's important. Dr. Fauci, earlier this month, said something in a lecture, he was talking to an audience in the UK virtually, that is just provably untrue. Here is just the snippet, and this is not out of context, this is what he said, cut 18. We have lost more children from SARS-CoV-2 than we ever lose for influenza. And we vaccinate children against influenza. So I put out uh, the video and some stats from the CDC demonstrating that it's just not true that more kids have died from COVID than ever die of the flu. It's, it's just the opposite. The flu has been in recent years deadlier in many cases than the entire pandemic combined when it comes to pediatric deaths. That number in the entire country, by the way, is 439. The true number is likely lower because there's a distinction between children who die and happen to have COVID versus children who die of COVID. But what bothered me and why it's still just sort of a burr under my saddle, doctor, is I feel like we have no chance of rational policies If one of the most trusted by millions of people, certainly most prominent doctors in the whole country, will say things like this about children that will stoke fear and that will, I mean, to the subtitle of your book, playing politics with science in the fight against COVID-19, stoke fear and exaggerate a minuscule threat in a way that I think is extremely counterproductive. It just worries me that we are going to take a lot longer to get to a good place because of, frankly, misinformation like that and the sources from which the misinformation emanate, including in this case, Dr. Fauci. Uh, I just wanted to get your reaction and your medical uh, your your medical per, uh, perception on this. Well, you know, Guy, one of the things that I wrote about in the book was, listen, I can find a study, a chart, a graph that can support anyone's individual narrative. 
So Dr. Fauci saying that COVID has killed more children than the flu ever does. Well, okay, so if you go by the confirmed flu deaths in children, then then actually that would be right. If we are taking apples to apples, confirmed COVID deaths in kids, and compare them to confirmed flu deaths in kids, it actually looks like there's a, over 400 COVID deaths in kids and about 200 in from the flu. However, the devil's in the details there because the CDC themselves and many studies have proven the confirmed flu deaths are grossly underestimated, which is why they even have to use modeling. So when you talk about flu deaths, they're really just estimates based on models. These are not even confirmed deaths. And the CDC reports that while they may say one to 200 children die from flu every year, that could be upwards up to a thousand some years have reported based on the strain. My full interview with Dr. Nicole Sapphire available online. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day. When the show ends, it comes up on demand, no charge to you, and it's growing. We are grateful. Let's keep that momentum. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, and wherever you get your free podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, a potential booze shortage. Producer Christine is in full-blown meltdown mode. Plus, some food shaming will explain when we return. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, Thursday edition. Thank you for listening. Good to be back here in D.C., back in our brand new, beautiful studio. Images of which will be shared at some time. I do promise you that. Before we get into the food shaming stories that I promised and teased before the break, We saw this earlier today from the Today Show. There have been various shortages during the pandemic. Probably the most memorable one was toilet paper, which never made any sense. I feel like that was maybe a teaser of things to come, of just abject irrationality and panics. The fact that you're still seeing people, you know, wiping down surfaces, spraying ceilings, I saw at the White House yesterday during their diplomacy, back and forth with all these Democrats about the spending packages. We talked to Chad Perkham about it in the last hour. The White House, one of the details in the Washington Post story was the White House was handing out COVID safe cookies that were individually wrapped. That is not how any of this works, right? It's that commercial with the old woman and her Facebook wall. This is not how any of this works. And we've known it for a long time, but there are a bunch of people who've just decided to stick with it. Now, no, we're just going to do all the things that we were doing in April of 2020, and we're going to learn zero things along the way. So the fact that there was a run on toilet paper for absolutely no reason, again, foretold much hysteria to come. Now, some of this stuff and the shortages along the way had to do with supply chain issues. I don't know what the background is here, but some experts are warning. And again, if it's experts warning, they could very well be wrong because they've been wrong about many things. But they are warning that there's a chance that the next shortage could be wine and liquor. So mama's juice and vodka, as producer Christine would say. And. Christine, are you beside yourself? I'm surprised you didn't call in today after hearing this and like making a run and just 
taking the day off to dash over to like the wine depot and buy decades worth of booze to store in your basement just in case. That was my anticipated response from you to this story because you kind of overreact to everything always. And this is, I would say, a pressure point for you. This is a sensitive topic for you, the idea that perhaps there might not be plentiful booze available at any time. Well, it's funny that you say that, Guy, because I just found out about this shortage this morning that it actually is going to affect my state. So I did let the boys on the show know that uh, Mama might not be here tomorrow. I've got I've got things to do. I've got stores to visit. And also, I have a question for you. Just hear just, me out. Hang on. Okay, you can ask me the question, but... Are you now referring to yourself, not just at home, in the confines of your four walls, but to our colleagues? You are now mama. Is this is this a new thing? I, I just go with it. Okay, I, all right. I, okay, but uh, he, mama might be out tomorrow yeah. because she'll be quote unquote sick. Yeah, the wine flu. Yeah, I'd that's, say heart that's sick. It. She'd be heart sick, and therefore stocking up. But what was your question, please? If I do make it to work tomorrow, is there any chance that you would entertain a caller segment strictly from um, former prisoners to teach me how to make certain alcohol? Like like prison hooch? Correct. Like the stuff they make in like toilets and stuff? I mean, based you, on you do what TV you got to do. I'm, I'm looking at the shortage seeing a bottle limit. I mean, that's it. What is that going to get me? A Friday from 7 to 9? <laughs> what do I do with the rest of the weekend? When would this bottle limit come into play? Now I'm getting concerned myself. I don't I don't think you're I think your state is okay. Um, I don't know. They they've got weird liquor laws down here, but okay, that that is interesting. I don't think that we're going to do a call topic for ex-felons who spent time in prison to give you a tutorial on how to make homemade prison wine. I don't think that's something that we're we're going to do here. You could always just sort of go on, I don't know, Reddit or something, or social media and solicit requests from ex-felons. I'm sure Bobby would be thrilled. Yeah, see, that's the problem. I think my husband wouldn't be okay with that. So that's why I came to you, of course. Mm. Well, thank you for that vote of confidence. Now, I want to shift over from alcohol to food. Last night, I was on Gutfeld. We had a great time. It was a very fun show. He did announce to the world that I was born in Saudi Arabia, which is true. I mean, uh, that's not something that I hide. It's on my Wikipedia page. It's a fact check, accurate statement. But I had a lot of people saying, wait, is that a joke or were you actually born there? I was actually born there. So he said I was born in Saudi Arabia and that's why they call me Prince, which I actually I could get used to that. In fact, Christine, let me let me dwell on that a little bit. But in any case, after the show, because the show tapes in the early evening, I'm not betraying any state secrets there. And Kat Timpf, who, of course, is the co-host of the show, she had a dinner and I asked her, hey, what are you doing after the show? Do you want to grab a bite? She's like, oh, I've got plans. She was then texting during commercial breaks, got me invited and included in the plans, which I was very, very happy. I didn't ask her to do that, but it was nice of her to do. Her husband was there. It was the publisher of National Review, uh, the new publisher there, who's a really nice guy. His husband also there, young guys. And then a few of their friends, and it was up on the rooftop at the very 
established and prestigious Union League club in Midtown. And the weather was just perfect, and it was a really nice evening out, and we were having a good time. And then I happened to see Kat tweet something. She said that desserts are for children. And this was at the point of the evening when we were ordering dessert. She, of course, didn't order dessert because she was sneering at apparently this sweet course at the end of a meal that is only for kids. I had already ordered just a scoop of ice cream. That's all I wanted. One scoop of ice cream. So it came out, and she jumped up from the other end of the table and came over and took a photo of me, and I actually posted it on my Instagram, Guy P. Benson. I have one of me and Dave Rubin taking a selfie. He was one of the other guests on Gutfeld last night, so we were backstage, snapped a selfie. He's coming to D.C. soon, so hopefully we'll get to see him maybe in studio. But then later, she comes up and, like, bum rushes me, like the paparazzi, and I have this sheepish look on my face as I'm just eating a little bite of this ice cream and she then tweets it and says case in point like i am this child eating dessert and i just want to say as someone who is not really a sweet tooth i'm not i I like a little bit of sweets i like certain candies you know that i'm a big peanut m&m guy i like some ice cream i don't love a bunch of baked goods or or like hard or sour candy i don't like any of that i don't like very sweet breakfast foods we've been through all of this But I felt like I was being bullied. I felt like I was being bullied by Cat Timp, who's all of 100 pounds and 5 foot nothing, for just having a scoop of ice cream. And then, in fact, sharing a photo of me eating the ice cream with the rest of the world on her Twitter account. And, of course, she has uh, quite a following. So I just want to take this opportunity on my platform to simply say this. I apologize for nothing. Dessert is not only for children. Ice cream is delicious, and I'm glad that I had it. If anything, I wish I had another scoop so I could have eaten longer and enjoyed the ice cream experience for a longer period of time while making awkward eye contact with my bully, Cat Temp. Christine, back me up here. Oh, I I don't normally agree with you, but I am 100% on your side. My favorite part of this uh, tweet is looking at the replies, and there are people saying that you look like James Vanderbeek. Do you know who that is? Oh, uh, yeah, from Dawson's Creek? <laughs> yeah, they say you look like a Dawson. Was he in uh, Mighty Ducks back in the day, or was that one of the other guys? No, that was Joshua Dawson's Jackson. Creek. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah, James Vanderbeek, I mean... Uh, That's an interesting, I've never gotten that before. I'll take it. I haven't gotten that before. I've gotten uh, the guy from Hamilton, who was the king. And he was in that HBO show, Looking. And he was in Mindhunter, too. What's his name? That's the one that I've gotten most frequently. Yeah, I should should remember his name. I've met him. (laughs) In fact, my husband once asked me, he texted me, Hey, have you ever met... Can someone please look this up? Whatever his name is. And I had a very good reply, which was I simply texted back the selfie that I had with Jonathan Groff is his name. I was able to go backstage at Hamilton and meet him. And so I was like, oh, hell yes, I've met him. Bang. Here's the photo. I've not gotten James Vanderbeek before. But again, I mean, that's I, I wouldn't call that an insult. Maybe her taking this photo was a blessing in disguise. Right. Maybe I'm looking like a debonair, younger, 
ice cream eating James Vanderbeek on a nice rooftop on a beautiful early fall evening. Maybe this wasn't bullying at all. Maybe she was doing me a favor. My mind is blown. Now, speaking of blowouts, last topic here on the home stretch. Do you remember a few years ago there was a KFC invention? A food-like product called the Double Down, in which they, it was like a chicken sandwich, but they got rid of the bread. There was no bread in the sandwich. Fried chicken cutlets served as the sandwich bread. And then there were sort of toppings or fillings in between the two cutlets. I did not try it. I remember reading about how just the the calories and the sodium, just like off the charts insane. It did not sound appealing to me. It sounded difficult to eat, very messy, just not not something that I decided to sort of get on the, the viral train for the KFC Double Down. I guess they've brought it back in Australia, and they've made it pizza flavored. So you've got two fried chicken breasts as the bread, quote unquote, and in the middle are some cheese, some pizza sauce, like a red sauce, and pepperoni. And I have to say, with all due respect to KFC, and they have some some tasty stuff, haven't been to a KFC in a while, it does not look good. The photo, even the promotional photo, does not look good. It is a guaranteed gut bomb. And the other question I have about it, if it's being introduced or reintroduced in Australia, who's going to buy it? Because aren't they not allowed to go anywhere in Australia? I mean, they have the craziest lockdowns down there. People can't be alone outside. They're not supposed to exercise except for maybe once a day. The police get involved. I don't know how you introduce a new product in a country where the country's closed. In any case, I might volunteer producer Christine to try the KFC pizza double down should it come to New York or New Jersey. It sounds like an abomination, which is why I think Christine should be the one to try it. And maybe if she's depressed enough over her booze shortage and the government-required rationing of alcohol consumption, maybe she would be in, I don't know, a a frame of mind to actually try it. Well, if you just let me talk to some prisoners, I won't be short of booze. Think about that. You run that past your husband about if that's something that you think is a good idea for tomorrow. And if he signs off, we'll think about it. Maybe we should take some calls regardless tomorrow. We can talk about that. But I'm thinking maybe not on that particular subject. But you mull it over. You have a little uh, family conference about that tonight and get back to me. It's the Friday edition tomorrow here on The Guy Benson Show. Same time, same place. Have a great night. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.